Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, Episode 7. The cell into which Cherami was placed measured three yards by four and was furnished with a slab of wood for a bed, a bucket for a toilet and a rat for a companion. A single window with rusty bars let in the summer air. Far below, a hairy street. Jeremy did not know which. Murchison Volume had blindfolded him after handcuffing him, citing the official Druggists Act. But Jeremy knew London town well. He knew the riverboat squires, the bells of Varmint Bow, the sound of tunes thunking inside the dome of St Paul's. And, listening now, in the silence of the cell, he heard something that told him where he might be. The tinkling dewdrop chimes of the Bank of England. He thought the police station that was his new residence might be the Tudor one on Cornhill. He had never touched opium in his life. He didn't like the stuff. Made a chap too much like a boy. Unmanned him. Turned him into a gibbering idiot. Nobody was ever going to call Sheremy Pantomile a gibbering idiot. He had a public frontage to maintain. So either he had been set up, or there had been a mistake. He was going to find out soon, however, for here came Murchison Volume. The police officer, dressed in casual jackets and a white cap, entered the cell alongside a woman of middle age, whose short hair, spectacles and bird-like demeanour made her look sinister. They carried collapsible chairs. This is Mary Jane Foolstruther, Murchison said as the pair sat down. My narcotics officer. Jeremy was not to be trifled with. What are you charging me with? Uh, nothing yet. We need to ask you some questions first. Perhaps you know the routine. Question first, then answer. You went to school, Mr Pantomile? I'm innocent. Never touched the stuff. If you recall, Murchison interrupted, I arrested you on suspicion of dealing in opium. But I never have. Mary Jane took a brown paper bag from her pocket and dropped it on the table. In a voice as dry and soft as a desert breeze, she said, We found this in your study. My study? You've been in my house. I damn well hope McTavish didn't assist you. Quiet, Murchison said. You've already strayed from the point. I deny everything. That's the point, officer. I have rights. A solicitor. Nonsense. London is hairy. This is an emergency. The police have special powers by order of the government. What special powers? They haven't been decided yet, Murchison explained. But when I know, oh, I'm quite certain I'll be telling you. Or perhaps I'll just put an advertisement in the Times. Jeremy thought Murchison to be quite possibly the most sarcastic police officer he had ever met. He said... I've been set up. I'll find out who, by... By whom? Murchison interrupted, 
Dear, dear, you do need some help with all this. But enough. Answer me this, Mr. Pantomile. Who is your underworld contact? The person who delivers the opium. I haven't got an underworld contact. What if I was to say, oh, I don't know, a name to you? Would your brain have enough gumption to recognise it? A name? Person B. Singh. Who? Murchison volume sighed and sat back. Mary Jane, go and fetch tea, three cups. The prisoner needs lubricating. Mary Jane walked out of the cell and locked the door. From his pocket, Murchison took a sachet of white powder, some of which he spread onto the slab of wood on which Cheremy sat. Cocaine, Mr. Pantomile? Cheremy shook his head, made a delicate gesture with one hand. Thank you, I don't. Murchison shrugged, then sniffed a mote of cocaine off the back of his hand. I could murder a cigaroon, though, Cheremy remarked. Then that's precisely what you won't get. I am bad, aren't I? This tea had better be good. It'll be like dishwater, like all our tea. Cheremy fidgeted, annoyance rising like vomit in his gullet. You'll regret arresting me. I have friends. Are you threatening me? <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's a criminal offence, I think. I mean, I'm only a police officer. How would I know what's right and what's wrong? Mary Jane returned with the tea. Jeremy took a cup and drank it. How long will you keep me here? he asked. Until we get the answers we want. Jeremy said nothing. That reply could mean they'd created a case against him already and were hoping to force a confession. He said, I'm saying nothing more until my solicitor arrives. You must fetch him now. You're keeping stumm? I'm keeping stumm. The pair stood up. We'll be back, Murchison said. Jeremy lay back on the slab of wood, appalled, anxious, hungry. Who could have set him up in this manner? Time passed. Evening slid into night. Jeremy dozed, waking up every few hours. Night slipped into morning, a new day. He stood on the slab of wood and peered out of the window. Hairy walls all around him. The cell faced a back alley. He heard nothing of people below. No clip-clop of horses, nor wheeze of horseless carriages. He was alone. And then he did hear something. A sound outside his cell window. A rustling, an occasional thud. Perhaps the hint of a muttered cry of exertion. Then a face at the window. Valentina! Jeremy, keep quiet. The sun is up, there may be people about. She glanced down, then over her shoulder at the building behind her. Probably not, though. London is hairier than ever. Have you come to rescue me? Valentina stared. You do ask stupid questions. Of course I'm rescuing you. 
Now help me with these bars. We need to sort them off. Through the window, she passed a hacksaw. Then, with a second hacksaw, began severing the bars. They're ancient and rusty, she said. This won't take long. Where am I? Jeremy asked as he saw it. The station on Cornhill. I knew it. Murchison Volume is one of the inscrutable squad. Valentina's expression indicated she did not know what Jeremy was talking about. A covert unit set up by the government, he explained. War and all that. Damn tricky business, especially when the police have so much power. Less gob and more saw, Valentina responded. Indeed, indeed. After five minutes, the gap in the window was wide enough for Jeremy to squeeze through, so that he sat on the sill, Valentina below him. He saw now that she had plaited her way up the wall, creating a strong rope that they could climb down. She clung to it now, but then he saw something that brought terror to his heart. Lice! They were enormous and heading in their direction, scuttling through the hair on the vertical wall as if on a horizontal surface in their element. Swiftly down, Valentina hissed. Jeremy began following her down the plat, but it was a difficult task with sweaty hands and the lice horde just yards away. As he dropped into the blonde locks at street level, a louse jumped at him, and he was forced to raise his hands and attack it with his fists. Then Valentina threw him something that glittered in the morning sun. Use this! It was a swordington made of steel. Its hilt, a cotton pad laced with gum. He grabbed it and struck out, killing two lice in one stroke. At his side, Valentina made Swordington play like a hussar. And seeing this, the other lice retreated. A light breeze ruffled the yellow hair in which they stood. Jeremy made to return the Swordington, but Valentina shook her head. You used it well, she said an enigmatic smile upon her lips. Jeremy could have sworn she was eyeing him up. And, you know, we may have need of weapons. London town is changing. For ill, for acutely ill. Jeremy looked around. I don't like the situation I find myself in, he said. London writhing beneath the hirsute plague, the police out of control, people trapped in their houses. Soon they'll run out of food and water, and then there will be horror in this city. Then it is up to us to aid the Institute in their work. Indeed, I'm not a member of the Suicide Club for nothing. Valentina looked him up and down, then tapped him on the shoulder with the tip of her swordington. You do not allow women to join your club, do you? Uh, no. The Constitution forbids it. Valentina shot him a mocking glance. What the shame. Half the population of London ignored. She shook her head. For shame, for shame, not least for the house of Moondust. Extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. He agreed with her. She had planned and undertaken an operation just like a man. Damn it, though, she was pretty. With the sun on her glossy hair and her chest heaving from the exertion. Do you know, Valentina, he said, 
I don't care about those stupid rules anymore. It is ludicrous. You proved that by rescuing me. She smiled. There is hope for you, perhaps. He glanced up and down the street, but saw nobody. Where to next? I'm effectively an outlaw now, though I use the term outlaw relatively. We must leave Cornhill and hide up somewhere. I have a place by Fishmonger's Hall, just along from London Bridge. A safe house. My own house. But, yes, it is safe. Jeremy did not like the idea of entering a lady's residence without formal invitation, but circumstances were against him. Very well, he said. She led the way down Grace Church Street, Arthur Street, then into Swan Lane. Opposite Fishmonger's Hall, he saw a small three-up, three-down house adjoined to the local branch of the Belfast and Goonhilly Bank, which was covered in ginger hair. In the light of the rising sun, it shone like red gold. Valentina unlocked the front door of this house and gestured him inside. The place was decorated in sophisticated style. Couches from Parisi, a Quinsarian Dubri, paintings by Schnauzer of Valenzoik, and even a stuffed sprog from Warsaw. I confess I'm... Surprised by this opulence, he said, you are independently... She glanced at him, amusement on her face. You surprise me, Jeremy, never having heard of the House of Moondust. I, I believe I've heard your name, but I can't quite bring the instance to mind. We are a family of foreign nobles. Ah, foreigners. That explained the feisty attitude. He chuckled and said... And you are from? Why? The moon. Where else? You've been indulging in Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson. 